I got into this to like be a part of a system that helps people and heals people and provides kindness. I don't think we actually make them that much more healthy in the long term. We fix an acute thing and we're like, well, my finger's in this hole, but man, that huge crack in the dam is about to burst, but I was here to fix this thing, so I'm holding it in. You know, I don't know how many, what your caseload is, but it's so long, and all you really want to do is, like, I just want to be off shift so I can go home and be on call, but I won't be here. Everybody's always under a tremendous amount of pressure to get people out of the hospital quickly. Those weren't the voices of tired residents or attendings. Those were actually the voices of social workers and case managers, Susan Headland and Drew Grebham from Oregon Health Services. It used to be in the old days we had time. You know, we had time to plan for some of this. And I think that's been one of the biggest changes in our current medical system is we rarely have much time. Truthfully, I've never thought about how the new demands of our healthcare system impact our social workers and case managers. You know, it's so easy for me to feel bad for myself. Oh, four new admissions, 20 notes to do, billing to do. The more I spoke to our interprofessional colleagues, the more it became apparent that we all feel that strain. And Drew speaks more to this tension that he sees and actually has felt in the past. You kind of just get caught in the machine. And as you're you're dealing with 20 of those discharges, you kind of lose touch of the human side of things. And then you kind of get dehumanized. And then it's a lot easier to just kind of like churn people out. And then once you sort of realize that, at least for me, I would recognize like, oh, that's not who I was. That's not how I got in this. Really just recognizing that oftentimes we're the messengers, especially in hospitals, of a broken system. We do become messengers for the system. And unfortunately, that means that our exchanges sometimes become reflections of our to-do lists. Hey, did you fill out that shelter packet? When is transport coming? Is the patient medically cleared? We have this multidisciplinary team but we aren't really talking. We don't always get a chance to like kind of talk about that or, or even dialogue with our colleagues about the pressures we feel like when it's happening and, and kind of commiserate. But when we can slow, slow down and step back, we often find like, yeah, uh, none of us like this, this, this discharge. And without much pause in the day, it's easy to fall into the trap of thinking it's us against the social worker or care manager who wants to get these patients out. But in fact, we are all held to these metrics, this volume, this pace. And I've rarely got a chance to think about what's it like to be in the shoes of a social worker or case manager nowadays? And importantly, if we are so busy trying to get done our piece of the pie, when do we get a chance to learn from each other? And that's where the beauty of podcasts come in. It lets us go places that we don't usually get to go and hear the perspectives of people we don't usually get to hear. And with that, welcome to our second interprofessional education series on Core IM. I am Dr. Shreya Trivedi, an internist at NYU, and today I am joined by... I'm Dr. Ryan Chippendale, a geriatrician and the Geriatrics Fellowship Program Director at Boston University. Thanks so much for having me on. And I'm Gabby Mayer. I'm a fourth-year medical student at NYU. It has been great to learn alongside this absolute dream team. Yes, and I hope you all will be curious with us and learn alongside us. So today, we'll start by hearing five ways for potentially improving collaboration and understanding with our case managers and social workers. Right. And I do want to just give you a heads up that the latter points that we'll cover are geared a little bit more towards inpatient and nursing homes, but Ryan is going to sprinkle in her outpatient geriatrics hat here and there. I'll try. <laughs> yeah. And after those five points, we'll hopefully end on an inspiring and creative note on how we can all work better together. All right, guys, I have a confession to make. 
safe space. It's okay. Lay it on us. So the confession is this. Before doing research for this episode, I wasn't entirely clear on what social workers and case managers do. And in fact, I had not really a clue what the differences were between these two roles. Well, I can say with certainty, Gabby, that you are not alone. I've been working on interprofessional teams for the past eight years as a geriatrician, and I'm still learning on the regular about the many areas of expertise that these folks offer our patients. Okay, thank you. That makes me feel a lot better because, you know, medicine is lifelong learning, and this is included in that, I guess. Um, But what I found interesting, too, was thinking about how this lack of knowledge is actually a well-documented force, and it's cited as a main factor contributing to workplace tension between physicians and social workers. In our residency, they're not like, hey, this is the medicine floor. This is your case manager. They do discharge planning. Here's the social worker. They do stuff. And that's what they get told. And you're like, okay, you do stuff. So I'll just send you stuff. So it's exactly as Drew describes. I can't remember ever getting taught what social workers do during medical school or even when I started rotating on the wards. And so if we don't receive any explicit training in this, who does teach us? The answer I've discovered is often the social workers or the case managers themselves. I was really young and it was new in my career, but I remember there was an occupational therapist who didn't think that social work did anything other than apply for Medicaid. And so those were early pain points for me of trying to figure out how do I try to show the value that I might bring to our patients uh, while not alienating my colleagues, you know, and not, and, and that took, took some years to finesse, oh. <laughs> if that makes sense. What this shows me is the way in which role confusion can really impact a social worker's lived experience in the workplace. So let's do our part here to try and alleviate a bit of this role confusion and define the jobs that so many are confused about. Let's start by talking about social workers. So social workers from a training perspective hold either a bachelor's or a master's degree in social work. Those might be abbreviated as a BSW or an MSW. And then in addition, some social workers have additional training in mental health services and counseling. And these social workers will have the initials LCSW behind their names, which stands for Licensed Clinical Social Worker. We also have skills in individual family and group therapy. So this is a little known fact. The largest number of mental health providers in the United States are are clinical social workers. Quite an important skill and role that these social workers are playing on a population level. What about case managers? What's their training like? So case managers at the minimum only need to hold a bachelor's degree. However, many of them come from a nursing background and a few, approximately 4% or so as cited in the literature, have a social work background. But regardless of their degrees and where they're coming from, the majority of case managers learn about their case manager roles from being on the job. That sounds tough and maybe sounds a little bit like intern year, just learning on the job. Uh Yes, it does. Yeah. (laughs) But, um, yeah. So, but how how does this distinct trainings that you really helped set up for us, how does it actually play out into practice? So this is unfortunately where it gets a little bit confusing because despite these different trainings and skills as we read on paper, in practice, the roles of social workers and case managers actually overlap quite a bit. So for example, both are responsible for facilitating transitions of care and accessing community resources. And by that, I mean housing, financial assistance, insurance applications. The one and hard fast rule that is worth highlighting here is that because social worker training has that extra emphasis on counseling, 
they can provide counseling services. And so here I'm thinking of looping them in for patients who have substance use disorders or mental health diagnoses or just any other social needs that can benefit from counseling. Yes. And to hammer that point home, Gabby, if I think about all the different social workers that I work with in my practice and how much their roles differ based on the sites of care that we're in. Like for instance, in the outpatient world, I consult them mostly for counseling and resources versus when I'm an inpatient or I'm in the nursing home, they're more involved in care coordination. What confuses the issue is that in many health systems, social workers are the discharge planners. And a lot of people will tell us that they, social workers feel frustrated that they're not getting to practice at the top of their license using their clinical skills because instead they're calling nursing homes and things like that. I think we can all relate to that feeling of, wait a minute, the responsibilities of the job that I'm currently doing are not exactly matching all of that training I did. And that certainly doesn't feel good, does it? Not at all. So if social workers have these counseling skills, then what distinguishes case managers on the job? It's a good question. So they focus a lot more on getting to know the patient from the perspective of the patient's barriers to care. And they're going to use this knowledge to advocate for the patient in terms of uh, getting psych care, medications, or housing. So they're really interested in hearing how many stairs does this patient have to climb to get home. In addition, they're also going to keep track of patient navigation, so making sure that patients don't have conflicting appointments. And lastly, they're going to ask, what's the most cost-effective thing for this patient? And to add one more thing to that, actually what I think is most important, what I distinctly see in my geriatrics practice is that case managers build really beautiful, intimate relationships with patients and families long-term, often over the span of years, but sometimes even decades. So we're starting to get a sense of how these different roles occupy slightly different niches. But like most things in medicine, we have to take these role descriptions with a big grain of salt, because in reality, the responsibilities for case manager versus social worker can look really different across different hospitals and can also depend on the individual's prior training, whether they're working inpatient or outpatient, and everything in between. I've gotten much better at being like, hey, what's your title? And can you tell me exactly what's kind of in your scope or not in your scope? Because I go to different hospitals and there's different... You know, some hospital systems here, the social workers are all just discharge planners and some are just therapists and all these things. So we just got to get better at understanding, like, what is it you define your role as just to, to have an understanding? I'd say the biggest takeaway here is ask your social worker or case manager colleagues what their individual scope of practice is. There's absolutely no shame in asking. Even social workers have to ask each other. Understanding the training and roles of our interprofessional colleagues is definitely the starting point. But once we're there, which hopefully we are now, <laughs> we need to be mindful of the limitations that social workers and case managers face. Right. This is just like how clinicians have to face the limits every day of what we can do medically for some of the tough conditions we see. So our second point gets exactly at that. What is actually in the purview of our interprofessional colleagues? And this point comes up more and more when we think about more complex patients. Social work referral, homeless, and I'm like, okay, you want me to confirm that? Like, what is it you want me to do with that? And it's very impersonal, so I think it, it, it feels overwhelming. So I think it kind of starts with the physician, because often the first person is very morally distressing case, and it's not that they intentionally want to pass it on, but sometimes like, oh, and they're homeless, like, well, what, I'm going to just do a social work referral. 
Drew reminded me of so many times in my training when I was managing a really complicated patient that I truly had no idea what I was asking or who I was asking my question to, but just wanted to scream, somebody help me. Drew, I've been there. <laughs> right? Drew called this passing along the moral distress. The point being that it's not that these referrals to social work are wrong or inappropriate, but we have to acknowledge our social workers and case managers also are limited in what they can do. I, I mean, I still think homelessness is, is an appropriate referral. Like, I think if someone has addiction, mental health, lots of trauma, homelessness, but, but the, the reality is, but we're not going to solve those, but maybe we can just acknowledge them and then reflect on how those things might be at play during their hospital stay or during their engagement after the hospital system. Look, there's no magic wand, but when we do loop in our team members, it's important that we are as specific as possible with our ask. Let's just get a little bit more specific and have a better communication style of what is it you think I can do? Because again, I get a referral homelessness. I don't know what you want me to do. Confirm it, acknowledge it, fix it. I don't know. Let's Tell me a little bit more, and if we don't create that dialogue, the social just feel that yeah. burden of they think I'm going to house them. I'm yeah, gonna, you know, like then and then they start to get mad, and then they already have like a negative interaction towards this patient. Some do, I should say, when they're burned out of like, oh, they, you know, they want me to house them, and, and there's not that clean dialogue and, and conversation, and so it's just it gets back to these systems that we can do better. For example, in the clinic, I get really detailed with my consults to our social worker. Using the example that Drew gave regarding homelessness, I instead may write something along the lines of, patient is facing eviction. Please assist in a connecting her to resources to help with an urgent housing application. Or please provide counseling over the stress of this poor patient losing their home. You are the social worker's dream. <laughs> Years of practice, guys. <laughs> This to me really reminds me of how I have been taught to never, ever, ever place a cardiology consult that just says, chest pain, please evaluate. Instead, when I'm on the wards for a sub-eye, I'm going to rehearse a well-formulated, specific question before calling to make sure that we get the most out of the consult. Yes, I think it's just best practice across the board, you know, regardless of who you're consulting. But you know what's worse? over-promising things to our patients when we really have no idea what our colleagues are actually capable of offering, whether that's from an insurance angle or a time or resource limitation. For example, the um, palliative care social worker I was speaking about yesterday, she's dealing with this really complex uh, situation with a patient who has long-term houselessness. And um, the hospitalist said to the patient, we'll find you a place to live before you're discharged. And that's probably not possible, you know, and so, so I think, I think be one of the things it's helpful if people ask before they promise services that we may or may not be able to deliver on. I wish I could say I didn't see this all the time, but often a very eager and well-intentioned clinician will tell a patient without consulting anyone that they can go to rehab or get all these home services that a social worker or case manager could literally tell you in six seconds flat won't be possible with their particular insurance. Oh boy, I can already see myself doing this as an intern. Yep, I've definitely done it. And then guess who's forced to go in and undo the damage? Probably Let not me. Tell me. You. Yeah, it's usually not you or me. It's the case managers and the social workers. 
which usually doesn't lead to a satisfied patient and can contribute to lots of frustration for our colleagues. And I bet if this is happening repeatedly, that this is going to really fracture the sense of cohesiveness and lead to team burnout. I'm afraid so. So my biggest takeaway for this point is to be realistic of the limited resources our case manager and social work colleagues have in their toolboxes. And the more specific our question is, the better. And once we do get them involved with that kind of specific question, the third point that social workers or case managers spoke about was misunderstandings or some of the tensions that come up from the behind the scenes work. And by behind the scenes work, I know you're referring to paperwork, right, Shreya? Our favorite. Uh, I hope, oh Ryan, you're kidding there. <laughs> this is this, Ryan is a big troll right now, I'm sure of it. Clearly, I am kidding. It's what all of us dread. Peer-to-peer reviews, wheelchair scripts, letters of medical necessity for hospital beds. Where doctors, unfortunately, um, get harassed by those of us trying to get pre-authorizations is that we often need the physician to either write a letter or sign off on why this particular treatment is essential for this patient's care. It's really interesting that Susan uses the word harassed here. Gosh, I really hope that I'm not giving off that vibe. I get that we often feel inundated with these requests, and I worry that some of that pushback can get misdirected and we end up shooting the messenger with rude tones or even eye rolls. Yeah, I mean, I think so many times as clinicians, we only see that extra phone call that we have to make or that extra piece of paper we have to sign, and we don't necessarily see the very time-consuming behind-the-scenes work that our social workers or care managers did to even get us to that point. We'll get a call from the oxygen company. And, you know, then you sit on the phone with them, talk to them, and they're like, well, we can't do it. And I'm like, well, what do you need that, so that we can get it? And then, you know, I've gone this back and forth thing now like five times, and that's when I usually come to the physician. So know that, you know, by the time we get to you and knowing that it can be covered that, and it has to be worded that way, we've had, you know, maybe five conversations up until that point. So we've spent a lot of time on that too. That's Todd Selmer, a registered nurse case manager at the University of Utah. And actually, since talking to him, I've been reading some of the case management notes, and some of those documentation really does reflect that runaround. It'll say something effective of, you know, quote unquote, called X nursing home Y number of times, got put on hold for Z number of minutes, transferred to a different unit, told to call back tomorrow, period. Oh, I have seen those too. And when we are finally pinged about that last bit of paperwork, it can seem in that moment, frankly, less important. We are not saying that this makes that extra thing to do an easy pill to swallow, but now understanding all that work that goes into it, I'm hoping all of us, myself included, of course, can be a little less emotionally charged when it comes our way. A lot of that behind-the-scenes work, like prior odds, letters of medical necessity, is dictated by insurance policies, and insurance is a pain point for all of us. Oh, yes, it is. Preach, Shreya. <laughs> yes. But from the perspective of case managers, they point out that it's when we don't take into account the patient's insurance status, particularly when we are choosing a medication option during a hospitalization or thinking about this patient even long-term with that medication. If uh, they don't have insurance that's going to cover, you know, let's say it's Lantus, yeah. And we're going to have to put them on a 70-30, which is like $25, where the Lantus is, you know, let's say $260. One of the big things is to start looking at that 
during the treatment process. So we can work with our, our medical team and say, hey, did you know they're unfunded? You have them on Lantus. Can we switch them to something else so we can get them on a, an insulin regime that is going to work when they leave the hospital with, with the funding that they have, if it's out of pocket, if it's insurance, and what the coverages are. I have seen this too often, right? Say we'll titrate this patient's hyperglycemia on Glargine. And then say on Monday, the case manager comes in and says, oh, wait, this patient's insurance won't cover Glargine. And then sure thing, an hour before discharge, we change it to 7030 insulin or a cheaper regimen. And then we're just hoping and guessing that this patient's sugars are going to respond in the outpatient setting as appropriately as they did in the inpatient. <laughs> yep. And I know it's hard to add another thing to keep in mind. But some EMRs can actually, if you can believe it, be helpful <laughs> with this by either allowing us to add an insurance column to our inpatient list or adding it to the top banner, making it front and center. Huge plug for that. I recently actually just added the insurance status column right after the patient's room uh, number. And it's actually been really easy and useful. Just get a quick peek. Oh, this patient's uninsured or, oh, has Medicaid. And let me loop in this care manager early in terms of the expensive meds. And especially because some hospitals have charity care or extra services for uninsured patients, our social workers and case managers can really help pull in how to still access some of those treatment options. Some of the IV stuff, we have an infusion team that works in our hospital, so we'll give them a heads up when we think someone's going to need you know, six weeks um, of, of an antibiotic for osteo, and we'll have them do a test claim to see you know, what their insurance is going to cover, what's the out-of-pocket for the patient. And so anytime we're looking at like big ticket items or that, you know, you realize that have gotten denied by insurance before is you kind of keep those in the back of your head when you're starting to send a patient out. And while I wish I had this kind of stored in the back of my mind, as Todd says, I feel like I learned a lot of these big ticket items that don't get good insurance coverage, trial by fire and getting some deep sighs or some angry phone calls from people. All the time. I spoke to some of our case managers here about what some of those common big ticket items were. And some of the things that we came up with were things like the DOAX, some of the uh, insulins that we use very commonly, newer diabetic regimens, oral chemotherapeutic agents, newer antiplatelets like Ticagrelor. So with these, really giving a heads up to the case manager allows them to run a test claim, see how much the med will cost, and then they'll go back to the patient and see if they can actually afford it. If not, it's back to the drawing board and our discharge is delayed. All right, so very similar to being mindful of the patient's insurance status with some of those big ticket medication options, we also heard from the case managers and social workers about being mindful about how patient's insurance status can impact a patient's disposition. I think the main thing is is not giving us the information soon enough when you know that they're going to have some dispo problem. I, I think one of the big things that I see in our, in our meetings is, is that we'll hear from PT that oh, a patient needs a skilled nursing facility. And then we look at the insurance and we're like, oh, sorry, they're unfunded. And then that's like, oh, now we got to start shifting gears and figure out what we can do for them to make them have a safe discharge. Now, wouldn't it be great if we had 15 hours to be on pre-rounds being as thorough as possible as we could with things like insurance for every patient, likely not going to happen in this lifetime, right, guys? But I do think with experience, we can learn which patients have risk factors that lead to dispo issues. 
And just a plug for our next interprofessional education episode, hopefully if you tune in, we'll be able to give you a great framework for thinking about discharge options based on insurance. I am excited about about that episode. But one other dispo point, at least for this episode, is around collaborating on how we can help move patients' care forward, particularly when it's around a patient who is not medically active anymore or unfortunately one of those quote-unquote rocks um, that we'll say on our lists. If you hear your case managers just saying like, well, the patient won't make a choice, they won't make a choice, and you know, push them to you know, get with that patient because that is where you're really going to get your days on the end, that you're going to be staying in the hospital where you're, you stand around and be like, we're just waiting for off. But one of the big driving forces of that is being proactive when patients come in and getting that choice, helping them, guiding them in the direction of picking a facility. Yeah, it's very easy when a patient's just waiting for subacute rehab to just pop in and out of the room, especially on those busy days. You know, you got to ration your, your time. And I understand that. But Todd's point is also well taken, right? So when I do go in, uh, ask and say, hey, how's it going thinking about options of the different facilities? And maybe I can help navigate some of that. Yeah, I've definitely had case managers on my team thank me for that extra nudge or a little bit of info that I get during rounds to get things moving for a patient. It's just like a two-hit hypothesis. Uh, uh, two-hit what? Okay, okay, <laughs> let me explain. So what I'm saying here is it can sometimes take multiple different members of the care team to nudge a patient towards a final decision about their dispo options. And so it's not actually redundant for an intern to go to talk to a patient about dispo, even if the social worker has already been in. It's just part of the process. And so hearing some of these areas for better collaboration with our social workers and, and case managers, it's made me reflect on a quote I found a few years ago. A few, and this quote actually comes from a MedEd article from 1974. Wow, historical. This quote yes. is vintage. And still very relevant. <laughs> it is a vintage quote, but it is absolute gold. And so I want to share it with everybody. The quote goes like this. It is naive to bring together a highly diverse group of people and expect that by calling them a team, they will in fact behave as a team. It is ironic indeed to realize that a football team spends 40 hours a week practicing teamwork for the two hours on Sunday afternoon when their work really counts. Teams and organizations, though, seldom spend two hours per year practicing when their ability to function as a team counts 40 hours a week. I don't even like football, and I absolutely love this quote. I love it too. It is naive for us to bring together a resident, attending, case manager, social worker, nurse, and think that just because we're calling it a team that they will, in fact, behave like a high-functioning team without any practice or pause. So how do we navigate these assumptions around interdisciplinary collaboration? As someone who's going to be working on teams for the rest of my career, how do we start to build up our teams and practice working within them? Yeah, so no no right answer, but you know, because we're moving more and more to team-based care, it is important for us to think about how do we create the space for us to talk about how to best work with each other to hear some of these frustrations that come up and navigate them. A recent QI project I actually recently tried and 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 really liked was uh, we took, you know, just 5 minutes on the first day of an inpatient rotation at the start of multidisciplinary rounds and we just said Let's go around and introduce ourselves and what our roles are. That's really, really cool because that's exactly what Drew recommended when we talked about pain point number one. 
Exactly. Full circle. <laughs> Good meta yeah. pedagogy right there. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, it was great because, like, okay, after we got on the same page about, okay, who is a social worker versus who actually is the case manager and their particular role on that unit or which intern is which, right? Clarifying even that. Um, after we got into that, we actually talked in a very appreciative, like, non judgmental way what does ideal communication look like for everybody and how do we get there? That's really great. And the underlying thing that you're doing there, Shreya, is intentionally creating that psychologically safe space. Yeah. And it was just really great to hear that feedback that like, okay, what is actually helpful for the nurse to hear on rounds? Or how do we get the case manager feel more comfortable speaking up more instead of the resident just kind of monologuing, running through patients? Um, But actually, the best part was the following week, we actually took time to give positive shout outs on the things that we had talked about from the past week. And so like, I'm not a euphemistic person, but it was actually close to magical, like seeing the social worker give my borderline burnt out intern a shout out in front of everyone for helping with a difficult dispo situation or the senior resident, her giving shout out to the nurse for going out of her way. It was just so eye-opening to see how far people feeling appreciated in the workplace can go. And I think it's not just that appreciation feels really nice. It can actually really help workplace dynamics and collaboration. So for example, here's a fantastic story illustrating this told by Dr. Daisy Smith from the ACP. I was precepting uh, residents in clinic and uh, one of the residents was presenting a patient who had been homeless with multiple complex medical problems. The patient was there for follow-up and the resident mentioned that the patient had recently moved into temporary housing and that their medical problems were under much better control. And I said, you know, who was the social worker who helped you? And she told me who it was. And I said, well, why don't we go and find her and let's go in and celebrate this moment with the patient together. Since then, you know, I felt like Whenever I need anything in clinic, like that social worker is really, you know, she's just so appreciative of our including her in that uh, successful moment. And isn't it just so much more fun to come to work when you've developed great relationships with the people that you work with? We're all on the same team. We all got into medicine to help patients. Yes, we work under less than optimal conditions and less than optimal pressure and pace, but we do need each other to move our patients' care forward, and our patients need us to truly collaborate in a cohesive way. Absolutely. And so to summarize what I'm taking away from hearing these social workers and care managers are five potential opportunities to better collaborate. Number one is going to be that foundation, really understanding what are their unique roles and responsibilities in your particular care setting. And number two, really knowing those limitations of what they can practically do for our patients. Number three, let's not shoot the messenger in the less than ideal system that we work in and be a little bit more empathetic to all the behind the scenes work that we all have to do. And number four, being mindful of a patient's insurance status, particularly for those expensive, big-ticket medications. Number five, on a similar note, thinking about the patient's insurance status and how it might impact someone's disposition, which we'll cover in a lot more depth in the next episode. And last but certainly not least... It's a bonus point. (laughs) Yes, it is. The importance of taking the time to appreciate and even celebrate each other's wins, no matter how big or small. Yes. um, And I'm all for those celebrations. Mm -hmm. But that being said, this is all easier said than done, right? We have more days than we'd like where we are, you know, pulled in every direction. But certainly hearing these social workers and care managers perspectives definitely gave me food for thought and opened my eyes to opportunities to better work with each other. 
And so with that, we would love to hear from you. How are you creatively building that psychological safety with your team members? We'd love to hear if this episode was helpful for you. And if so, how? Tell us if you were inspired at all to make any changes. And let's continue this conversation on Twitter, via email, or any of our other social media accounts. Please share this episode with your colleagues or team members if it was helpful for you. And if you like this episode, give us a rating on iTunes or whatever stars <laughs> or whatever podcast that, that doesn't exist, but yeah. we'll take five it does stars. Now. It does now. Whatever podcast app you use, uh, certainly. Um, and it, it does help people find us. So we appreciate the feedback. And remember, you can get CME credit with this episode with ACP. We'll link the exact URL in the show notes. Thank you to Ara Macklin for his wonderful audio editing. And as always, all opinions expressed in this episode are our own and do not represent opinions of any affiliated institutions. And with that, thank you so much for listening today and take care. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.